Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're going to be discussing the difficult human existence, sickness, aging, and death. This is chapter 15 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. In this chapter, we explore Gautama Buddha's story from the time where he was Siddhartha Gautama, a prince, all the way through to where he's actually attaining enlightenment and starting to teach. There's these four observations that he makes that really are the motivating factors that send him out on this pursuit to understand the mind and attain enlightenment. So today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be exploring this story that I know about Gautama Buddha's lifetime, We're going to be talking about the four observations and how that motivated him. We're going to be talking about what he actually did during his pursuit to enlightenment, what he did after enlightenment, and most importantly, we're going to be taking these four observations and looking at how to apply the teachings of Gautama Buddha in these situations of sickness, aging, and death. Because while these were the motivators, for Gautama Buddha to actually attain enlightenment, they are in fact the most difficult aspects of the human existence is dealing with sickness, aging, and death. So thank you guys for joining and thank you for taking time out of your day to learn and understand the teachings of Gautama Buddha. And most importantly, thank you for practicing these teachings in your daily life. The more that you learn and practice these teachings, the more you will see that your mind will continually improve, your life will continually improve, you, the people around you, and all of humanity will benefit from you actually learning and practicing these teachings. So let's talk about Gautama Buddha's life and the four observations. Gautama Buddha was born in a part of the world that we now call Nepal. At that time, it wasn't Nepal, But now, because of impermanence, things have changed and we've drawn borders and we have Nepal and India. So northeastern India and Nepal is essentially the area where Gautama Buddha lived. And it's been determined that he was absolutely born in Nepal. When he was born, he was born into a royal family. And he was born to a king and a queen. And as part of his mother's pregnancy, it was common during the time of her life that when you're giving birth to actually go back to your home, not where you are currently living. So her husband, the king, brought her from wherever she was 
to live with him in his palace. But then when it was time for her to give birth, it was customary for the woman to then travel back to their home and actually give birth there. So when she was on her way in her caravan back home, that's when labor actually kicks in. And she stops the caravan and gets out and goes over to a tree and reaches up and grabs the branch of a tree and is in intense labor pains. As she gets in more and more intense labor pains, this baby isn't able to come out through the natural birthing canal of the vagina and the baby ends up being born out of the side of her stomach. And you'll see artwork oftentimes depicting this. If you see a woman dressed in kind of royal clothing, reaching up, grabbing a branch of a tree and perhaps a little slit in the side of her stomach, that's depicting the birth of Gautama Buddha, who at that time was Siddhartha Gautama because he was not yet a Buddha. He had not yet attained enlightenment. So he was referred to as Siddhartha Gautama. Now, there's various stories about certain things that happened at his birth that I don't tend to share because I don't know that they're true. You'll hear people say that as soon as he came out from the side of her stomach, that he walked seven steps and lotus flowers were blossoming under his feet. And he spoke the words that this will be my last birth. Okay. now for me, I feel that this is really just embellishment on the story because If you understand or you think that the Buddha had lotus flowers coming up under his feet as he walked as a newborn infant, then the next part of the story that I'm going to share with you, there would be no purpose for it. But before we move on to that next part, it's important to understand that Siddhartha Gautama's mother actually died seven days after his birth because 2,580 years ago, essentially, when he was born, there was no C-sections. So there wasn't the medical technology for allowing the mother to actually survive this birth of a child through the stomach, not coming through the birthing canal. So she actually dies. And what was also customary during that time is that the mother's siblings, so her sister, her older sister, ends up adopting Siddhartha Gautama as her child, essentially. So his stepmother was his aunt, and that is who we know that actually provided the parenting guidance for him as the mother figure growing up. Now, when he was born, it was also customary for the king to bring advisors to help him understand what his son was going to become. And this I know to be true, that there was actually advisors that came and gave the king advice on what his son was to become. Well, if your son is born and he instantly walks and there's lotus flowers popping under his feet and he speaks at birth and says, this will be my last birth, I don't think you need any advisors to tell you what your son's going to become. That's pretty miraculous that this has happened. So this part of the story of these lotus flowers and speaking at birth and so forth and actually walking, I think that's more of an embellishment of a story. And that happens through impermanence that the more affection, the more love and admiration people have over the years for this individual that we know of as Gautama Buddha, people kind of embellish the story, I feel. But we do know that there was advisors that gave the father advice. 
And from the story that I understand, there was 108 advisors. And 107 of those advisors told the king that his son was going to be a great monarch and he was going to rule over his kingdom and spread his kingdom really far and wide and make it flourish and be more and more successful. So of course the king really loved this and he really enjoyed hearing those stories from these 107 advisors. But there was one advisor who told the king, uh, sir, your, your son is actually going to be a spiritual leader. He's not going to do what these other advisors have shared with you. He's actually going to be a great leader, but not in the way that you think, more of a spiritual leader. And this is what encouraged the king to sequester Siddhartha Gautama into the palace. Because he heard this advice from this one advisor, he actually kept his son in the royal palace for 29 years. And he tried to kind of woo him into the ways of becoming a monarch. He gave him wonderful clothing. He gave him fabulous food, lots of entertainment, beautiful women to bathe him and take care of him. Pretty much every luxury that a monarch would have, he kind of provided this for his young son as a way to kind of woo him into the waves of desiring to be a monarch and only ever kind of being accustomed to that lifestyle. Well, during the this particular time frame, your firstborn son would become the king when he turned 30 years old, not when the king actually died. So when Siddhartha Gautama started to get closer and closer to the age of 30, he was about to ascend to the royal throne and realizes that he hasn't even been outside the palace. He was going to essentially rule over all of these people in the kingdom without ever having stepped foot out of the palace and actually know what's going on out there. So against his father's knowledge and his wishes, Siddhartha Gautama brings his attendant to go outside the palace at the age of 29. And when he makes his way outside the palace, he observes a sick person, an aging person, an old person, a person who has died, and also an aesthetic or a spiritual seeker. In these four observations, his attendant kind of had to explain to him what was going on. He had to explain to him about people getting sick and there was other people around this person who was sick and they were in deep sorrow and despair because of this sickness and this ailment. And there was somebody who was aging and old and decrepit and feeling bodily pains and seeing the sorrow and sadness in this particular person's mind and in his life. And then he saw a dead body, a corpse. And again, all the sorrow and despair associated with this. And this was really kind of shaking him up because he didn't understand these things perhaps the way that he should have at the age of 29. And it caused complications for him in terms of wanting to understand why people's minds were this way in these big particular moments of sickness, aging, and death. And he saw this spiritual seeker, one who was looking for a better understanding of life. And through those four observations, he decides that he would like to actually pursue a spiritual path because he wasn't interested in ruling over this sickness, aging, and death, this sorrow, and this misery. 
he didn't feel that he had what he needed in order to help these people. So he eventually decides to leave the royal palace. And at that time, he was actually married and he had a newborn son. And he leaves in the middle of the night because he says that he could feel that if he picked up his son or he kissed his wife goodbye and told him that he was leaving, that his mind would kind of pull too strongly in the direction of his family and his newborn son and he wouldn't actually leave. So he leaves in the middle of the night and he takes with him his attendant and he takes with him his beloved horse and he leaves the palace, right? Because at this time, he doesn't understand attachment. He doesn't understand craving. He doesn't understand desire and how the mind is latching on and has this mental longing. He understands it kind of on a superficial level that if he picked up his son or he kissed his wife, he may not leave the palace, but he still has craving, desire, or attachment, but he doesn't know what that is at that point because he takes his horse and he takes his attendant with him and he leaves the palace and he eventually comes to a place where he sits down and he starts to kind of shed these attachments without really realizing what he's doing yet he actually starts shedding things he he tells his attendant to leave he lets his horse go and lets his horse run away and at this time he has really long beautiful hair because 2,500 years ago, the only way that people knew that you were royalty or that you were part of the royal family is if you had this long, beautiful, luxurious hair. Because there was no photographs, there was no internet, there was no TV to tell everybody out in the kingdom of who is the royal family. The only way you would know who was part of the royal family is if you came in contact with them and you saw their clothing, their wealth, and this long, beautiful hair, because it's only royalty that would have the amount of time to sit around and take care of their hair and actually have people to take care of their hair, where workers who were laborers and worked on farms and shopkeepers and things like this, they're too busy to have this long, beautiful, luxurious hair. So this long, luxurious, beautiful hair is kind of a symbol of being part of the royal family. And what he does is not only does he let his attendant go, not only let his horse go, but he actually cuts off his hair. This is a major milestone in his realizations in him letting go because once he cuts off that hair, it's essentially like I'm not going back because it takes many, many, many years to grow this long, luxurious hair. And there's no way that anyone would ever believe that he was the king of this kingdom without having that long, luxurious, beautiful hair. And this is why to this day, you will see Buddhist monks and Bikini, who are the female ordained. You'll see certain household practitioners who are practicing more closely. They will cut off their hair as a way of kind of letting go of the self-image or self-identity. And this comes from the time when Siddhartha Gautama cut off his hair as part of him kind of letting go of this life of royalty. From there, he ends up taking up teachers. There's two individual teachers that he ends up studying with. And during this time in that particular area of the world, there were lots of people who were 
teaching and who had claimed that their teachings would allow somebody to reach to enlightenment. And there was lots and lots of people that were working on understanding the mind and kind of pursuing some type of path that leads to an enlightened mind. So he takes up teachings with two individual teachers. And what they teach him is various practices to actually disparage the body, you know, hanging himself upside down from trees, starving himself, doing all these kind of horrible things to the actual body. And what the belief was with among these aesthetics and these spiritual seekers is that if you do these horrible things to the body, the mind will transcend that pain and that's the way to get to enlightenment. And then you had these other groups of people who were practicing teachings with Brahmin priests who were paying money to priests to kind of pray to the gods on their behalf. But yet you still had these collections of people individually, kind of individual camps that were attempting to figure out or claiming that they had already figured out how to attain enlightenment. So over the next two years, Siddhartha Gautama or aesthetic Gautama, aesthetic is kind of a, a renunciate, someone who's given up on the worldly possessions and worldly trappings of life and essentially is looking and seeking for this better understanding of life. So aesthetic Gautama at this time takes up training and he starts doing all these disparaging things to the body over this two-year period. And he realizes that after two years, his mind is not in any better of a situation than it was prior when he was in the palace. He didn't understand anything more about this sickness, aging, and death than he did when he was actually in the palace and had these observations. So kind of frustrated and irritated and annoyed with having spent the last two years of his life with these teachers and not making any progress, he decides to trek out on his own and he goes into the forest on his own. But because his mind is still holding on to these practices that he learned from these other teachers, even when he was out in the forest, he was still doing the things that they were teaching him. He was still starving himself. He was still doing all these horrible things. And kind of meditation was kind of part of this practices, but not in the way that he eventually comes to understand meditation. And it's said that he essentially starves himself so much that he's just on the brink of death. You'll oftentimes see artwork or statues where his ribs are sunken in, his stomach is sunken in, all you essentially see is skin and bones because these practitioners that were practicing this way, that's essentially what their body would become is just skin and bones. They were just kind of barely alive thinking that this would help them to train the mind. But what Gautama Buddha realizes in the forest on his own is that if he continued to allow his body to become so decrepit and so malnourished that the body would actually die, the physical body would die, and he would no longer be able to actually train the mind. And this is part of the realization that he has when a, a young girl comes and offers him some rice. And he kind of reluctantly accepts this rice and starts eating it, realizing that he needs to nourish the body and sustain the health of the body in order to be able to train the mind. And sometimes when you see artwork and he's accepting this rice from this little girl, he'll kind of be turning away 
almost like in disgust with himself. But he's making that realization. But at the same time, he's not enlightened yet. So he's still frustrated with himself that he's having to kind of go in this direction of actually eating because it was seen as kind of like a luxury amongst these aesthetics that you actually eat food. So he eats food, he starts nourishing himself, he starts to replenish his energy. And there in the forest over the next four years, so a total of six years of this journey, he understands more and more and more about the mind. And he starts to understand what's causing the mind to be discontent. And he starts to liberate his mind on his own through understanding things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, Gamma, and the Three Poisons, and a lot of the other teachings that I've been sharing throughout this group learning program. And through him discovering these teachings and realizing that these are the universal truths, this is the truth of our existence, he starts to liberate his mind and his mind gradually becomes more and more liberated where he starts seeing that the condition of the mind is improving and this anger, this frustration, irritation, annoyance slowly starts to be eradicated from the mind. And ultimately, he does attain enlightenment on his own. This is one of the criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha, is that they discover the teachings on their own without the help or guidance of any teachers. Now, some people will share a story with you that Siddhartha Gautama or Aesthetic Gautama, ultimately Gautama Buddha, just sits under a tree, a Bodhi tree, and he meditates and he instantly becomes enlightened. But this isn't what he shares in his teachings. He talks about it as a gradual progression, that he gradually progressed to this enlightened mind. But there is discussion of him contemplating under this Bodhi tree for seven weeks. And while he was enlightened at that time, he was contemplating whether to actually share the teachings with anybody else because he felt that the world wasn't ready to truly hear what he had to say about how to attain enlightenment. Because these camps that were still disparaging the body, many of them thought that they had attained enlightenment already. And they were teaching other people how to disparage the body. So him discovering this knowledge, he was essentially the only one in the world that understood at that moment what it took to attain enlightenment. And it was kind of like him against everybody else. And why would they ever necessarily understand his teachings? He felt that it was too complex or too detailed and too opposite of what everyone else was currently doing that they wouldn't understand and they wouldn't be willing to learn. So after seven weeks, he eventually comes back to the area where these other aesthetics are doing damage to the body, hanging themselves upside down from trees and so forth. And he encounters four of his previous friends and fellow students, as well as a fifth person who was one of his previous teachers. And when he runs into these five people, they kind of start mocking him and they start joking him. Because remember, they're starving themselves, they're skin and bones. And here they see this aesthetic who has meat on his bones. And they thought that he had given up because they hadn't seen him for four years 
and he had meat and bones, he was actually healthy. So to them, to attain enlightenment, he should be starving himself, but here he actually was well-nourished. So they thought he had given up and gone back to the royal life, and they started laughing at him and joking him and mocking him. And he actually knew at that point that he had attained the truth because his mind was calm, peaceful, stable. It was unshakable. He had eradicated all of these discontent feelings and his mind was peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So he knew what the truth was, but other people didn't know that because looking at an individual who's attained enlightenment, physically they look exactly like anyone else because all the changes are in the mind. So since they were mocking him and joking him, he actually sits down and he takes his hand and he presses on the earth and then he calls these animals to where he is. This is essentially the one miracle that he performed in order to convince people that he was actually enlightened. You will oftentimes see artwork of this where the Buddha is sitting by himself with five people around him and one of them may have gray hair. This is his teacher. And oftentimes you'll see kind of animals of all different types kind of running from the woods towards him. And this is the first miracle, the only miracle essentially that he produced in order to convince those five people, those five aesthetics that he was in fact enlightened. And when all these animals came running towards him, they all sat down and would say, okay, you've got our attention now. What do you have to say? And this is where he delivers his very first discourse of the Four Noble Truths. And it becomes revolutionary at that point because everybody was doing all this damage to the body, thinking that that was somehow going to train the mind. And when Gautama Buddha starts teaching and he explains how it's this craving, this attachment, this desire, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, which is the cause of the discontent mind. It's actually the mind causing itself to be discontent because it has this longing and this strong eagerness for certain objects and possessions and situations, this tendency for the mind to hold on permanently when everything is impermanent. And whoa, everybody's mind is like, wow, this is not something we've heard before. And then he goes in to explain how we can eliminate this discontent mind by training it to eliminate this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness. If we train the mind towards eliminating that tendency, then we can eliminate the discontent mind. And then, of course, he goes on and says the way to do this and attain enlightenment is through the Eightfold Path. So in four simple sentences, he essentially explains the origin of the problem. He explains the cause of the problem. He explains the elimination of that problem or the solution to the problem. And then he explains that there's an entire path of a way to completely eliminate all of the discontentness in the mind by learning and practicing the Eightfold Path. And these five aesthetics, because they were working on belief before, they didn't have truth. As the Buddha was speaking in the Four Noble Truths, this was evidence that they could actually independently verify and see for themselves, yeah, I am causing my own discontent mind. I see that because they could independently verify it. Even though the Buddha was speaking it, 
they could see the truth for themselves through just observation, independent observation. And they could see that by eliminating that craving, that desire, that attachment, that mental longing, that by eliminating that, they could actually eliminate the discontent mind. So he was always teaching in a way that could be independently verified. That's why we call them truths, because these practices, these teachings aren't based on belief. You can actually independently verify them. And from those five aesthetics, those were the only people that needed to see that first miracle, because after that, all the people who studied with them, as he taught them the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all of his other teachings, they could see the truth for themselves. He didn't need to produce any further miracles. They could see that as he spoke, they could independently confirm his teachings on their own to see the truth. And then as they practiced what he taught, the condition of their mind improved so they could see the truth for themselves, that their mind was moving from this anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, to eventually attaining this mental state of enlightenment or nibbana. And he goes on and he teaches more and more and more people. But he still has these challenges because there's people who aren't learning with him who still think that they're enlightened. They are still disparaging the body. There's still villagers who are paying Brahmin priests in order to pray to God on their behalf and thinking that these are the way to live life and these are the, the teachings. So it was only the people who were studying with him that understood what he was teaching and that his teachings were actually leading them exactly on this path that he had laid out for them. And sometimes he would get together and he would have discussions with other teachers who were claiming that they were enlightened and they would have their students around them and the Buddha would have his students with him and these two teachers would talk. And through these discussions, sometimes the teacher would get angry and upset and they would kind of storm off. And from that, the students knew that their teacher wasn't enlightened because he was irritated, he was annoyed, he got angry, he got up and left. So those students would actually become students of the Buddha. Or sometimes the Buddha was so skillful in his teaching and his talks with these other teachers that those other teachers would become students of him and bring their students along with them. So he would essentially kind of absorb more and more people into his community where he was teaching them. And he was essentially moving people from these disparaging practices of harming the body to attain some benefit and moving people from paying money to priests to go off and pray on their behalf to now understanding this natural law of gamma that it's cause and effect or action and result. It's not about just giving money to somebody and having them go pray for you and then your life is going to improve. It's about you actually have to take actions to learn and practice the teachings to improve the condition of your life based on improving the decisions that you made. But even though he was doing this and there was more and more people collecting around him, not everybody really agreed or felt that he was actually enlightened, but his group just kept growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And he shared more and more of his teachings. And upon his death at the age of 80, 
he ultimately leaves behind these teachings that have now been spread throughout the world for 2,500 years. And because of impermanence, there's been all these different branches and traditions that have been created that say they're teaching the Buddhist teachings or that they are in fact Buddhism, but in reality, they've really changed and morphed the teachings. And what we actually see is we're kind of back in that same situation where we've got all these various camps around the world that claim that they have the teachings that lead to enlightenment, but nobody really truly knows unless you actually study and you see the benefits of your mind improving. And if you see that your mind is improving, the condition of the mind is improving, then you know that the teachings you're learning and practicing are actually the truth. And it's in the Theravada tradition that we focus on maintaining the teachings closest to the time of the Buddha that were learned and practiced during his lifetime. And the word Theravada means teachings of the elders. So what I share with you in all the different ways, whether it's the book or videos or podcasts or my talks or anything that I'm sharing is always coming from the original source of Gautama Buddha's teachings, which are training the mind. There's nothing in his teachings that is based on prayer. In fact, that's what he shared at the time of his life, that these things don't lead to enlightenment. Doesn't mean you can't pray, but that's not what's going to lead to enlightenment doing horrible things to the body. So if somebody's teaching you to be in meditation and just kind of push through the pain of the body and just stay in there and just keep with that pain, he taught that that's not what leads to enlightenment. Same thing he taught about rites and rituals and ceremonies that were going on at the time. He taught that these things don't lead to enlightenment. So if you're learning these things and people, even though they might be calling it Buddhism, it's not what the Buddha actually taught as part of his path to enlightenment. And as you heard during his lifetime, there were lots of people who were worshiping gods and various gods. Gautama Buddha's job at his lifetime wasn't to prove or disprove God. He didn't attempt to do that. There will be certain people who will share with you that he actually denied the existence of God, but this isn't true. He actually taught and mentioned God in various teachings that he had, but essentially what I gather from those teachings is don't be attached to God. Don't expect God to create change in your life. You've actually got to do it yourself. So he was focusing people's minds on learning these teachings and practicing these teachings, accepting responsibility for the decisions that you make in your life and realizing that by learning certain teachings to improve the decisions that you make, you will actually improve the quality of your life. And your mind will become more and more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you're causing less and less harm in the world. So that means harm isn't being returned to you. And this is why his teachings were just revolutionary because they were teaching people not to disparage the body, that you don't need to go pay money to priest and pray and do all of these things that you can actually do the work to learn and practice these teachings to improve the condition of your life and the condition of your mind. So I would like to pause here before we go into actually talking about sickness, aging, and death and see what questions you guys might have about Gautama Buddha's life story, 
maybe even if you have questions about certain things you've heard about Gautama Buddha's life story. Thanks, Dave. It's very interesting to hear you reflect on how this whole setup of the Buddha's enlightenment is significant in the, the world as it's configured today as well. And so you know, the, the early life of, of this hedonism where he's in the palace and how that just didn't seem to produce any lasting results. But then the, the asceticism, the self-torture as well. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on whether you think that's still a practice that is in some form still going today, maybe not the same form. Sure, you know, those things are all still going on. I mean, if you look in certain places of the world, there's people that are really eating very minimal food and kind of doing certain practices to the body in order to kind of disparage the body, maybe not as extreme as hanging themselves upside down from trees or these other things. But just because Gautama Buddha came and he taught and we're aware of the Buddhist teachings, it doesn't mean everybody in the world is aware of these things. So just like in the Buddha's lifetime, we have lots of people who go to certain places and pray or give money to priests in order to feel that they're getting some kind of benefit from that. And we still have people that are doing ceremonies and rituals and all of these different things and feeling that there's some kind of benefit in that. And we still got people who are disparaging the body and thinking that there's some kind of benefit in that. And some of these various places say, we have the answers. We have the answers that will lead you to some better result, either upon death, that when you die, you'll go to some place that's going to be beneficial, or they may even say your life will be better if you, you know, learn and practice what it is that they're sharing. But all of these, from my experience, from what I've been exposed to, they're all based on belief. You know, and you don't really know whether these things are right or wrong until you actually die. And at that point, it's kind of too late, right? Where the Buddhist teachings are entirely unique and to me revolutionary is that they're not based on belief. They're based on you learning and practicing so that you can independently observe the truth for yourself and you know that it's truth so that you gain wisdom and by practicing these teachings, you see the quality of your mind improving. You see the quality of your life improving. And through that, you know the truth. You're not waiting and hoping that you figured it all out and your beliefs are correct and that when you die, something good's going to happen. Something good is happening right now is that your mind, the condition of your mind and your life is gradually improving so you know wow this is the truth and unfortunately not everybody is aware of these truths and that's why you have people like me and others around the world who if you've discovered the truth you might be sharing it in various ways to help more and more people understand it and i just feel that this is the most revolutionary thing in Gautama Buddhist teachings is that they are independently verifiable. It's not based on any belief. And that's how you'll know that what you're learning and practicing is the truth. And this particular story about the Buddha that I just gave, I was talking with a student just recently, you know, whether what I just described about his life story is 100% correct or certain miracles that people have said that he's produced, whether those things are actually correct or not, it doesn't actually really matter. 
what the Buddha's life was prior to his enlightenment and what he actually did, honestly, it doesn't really matter too much. I share it because it helps you to see that he had this gradual pursuit, that he was just a normal person, just like all of us. And I share it because this difficult human existence of sickness, aging, and death, as we talk about that, it helps you to understand how to deal with life better. But whether he had one son or two sons, or whether all the animals came or not, or whether he walked and lotus flowers popped up under his feet, all of these things actually don't matter because they're in the past. And nothing that we learn and practice in this tradition is based on the past. And it's nothing in this tradition is based on belief. So what we look at is, well, what do we have right now? Well, right now we have teachings that we can learn and practice. And by learning and practicing those teachings, we see the quality of our mind improving. So whatever the stories are, about Gautama Buddha's life, whether they're right, wrong, correct, how many miracles he did, or whether there were seven lotus flowers that popped up under his feet is irrelevant because the fact is is that we have these good, wholesome teachings, and by learning and practicing them, we can see benefit to our mind and to our life, and that's all that really matters. We don't need to put a lot of significance on what aspects of the story are necessarily accurate or correct. All that matters is we have the teachings, let's learn them, practice them, and improve our life. Yes, true. I think there's many aspects of that story that everybody can relate to on their journey as well. So, you know, the the pleasure-seeking, but also maybe the the self-punishment, which you see a lot these days through uh, just like athleticism, people obsessed with fitness or career, this kind of idea that if I just punish myself enough, it'll be worth it and then I'll be happy. And eventually we maybe see the wisdom in in that. Um, And also I think, did you say that there was a a four-year gap between when he started looking after his body again and and awakened? When he actually started looking after his body, you know, I I don't have that information, but there was a a six-year journey. Four years of that was independent. So the first two years he was with these other teachers, then he strikes out on his own. I don't know how long he was still disparaging the body for, you know, three months, six months, one year, two years, we don't really know. But his real progress came when he started eating again and he started taking care of the body. So this is how, where if you're involved, even in people teaching you meditation and they're teaching you to to just grin and bear it and kind of push through the pain, then you can look at this story of the Buddha and say, hold on a second, that's not part of the path. It's just grinning and bearing the pain. The pain is actually a way to tell the mind something's wrong here. Let's fix this hip or fix this knee and improve the position so we can actually get to the mind and train the mind. Interesting also that his greatest insights came right after this terrible experience he had been through. Is, is there relevance there, do you think? Because often I, you know, I I think a lot of people experience that their greatest feelings of liberation come after some deep problem or trauma or something. Yeah, you know, there's, there's always a pivotal moment where people are going to kind of hit rock bottom, so to speak. And then people that have once done bad things or have had challenges in their life and now kind of improve, 
Oftentimes, it's when people hit that bottom. And for Gautama Buddha, if you can imagine living for 29 years in a royal palace and how luxurious that must have been, and then to go out into the kingdom where he was seeing poverty, he was seeing sickness, and he was seeing probably raggeded clothes by some people, and he was seeing, you know, all the work and the labor and all the things, you know, this palace must have just been like heaven, essentially, what his father was trying to create for him to kind of keep him hooked on the royal life. So it must have been like night and day for him stepping outside the royal palace. And, you know, this story that I've shared with you, I just kind of talked about it more in general, but there's a lot of details that people often share. There's even a story that when he was Siddhartha Gautama, he was a prince and he first got married with his wife who was essentially his cousin that there was a time where they were so in love and so enamored with each other that they were actually making love on the top of a building and they were so deep into each other and so deep into making love that they actually are making love and rolling off of the roof of the building and actually come tumbling down to the ground and fall and they're still making love on the ground right so this goes to show you somebody with craving and desire, attachment for sexual contact so deeply the way that he did. And I imagine, you know, that with all the different luxuries that he had around him, I'm sure there was various women, even before he got married, that were very interested in being close to him and perhaps having a sexual relationship. So he was able to transcend all of that, right? Oftentimes, we take somebody like the Buddha or Jesus Christ or some of these other original teachers and we prop them up so much and we think that they're just perfect all the way from birth all the way until they died. But this just isn't true. And if we think that way and we think that you have to be perfect from the time that you're born all the way until death in order to somehow have some good life or reach some good destination at the end of this life, it's just not true that Siddhartha Gautama, he encountered many of the same problems that we encounter in daily life as well. Even though he was part of a royal family, he still had a mind that was having craving, anger, and ignorance as part of his life as Siddhartha Gautama, even to the point where he had this deep, deep passion and craving for sexual activity. And in order to get to enlightenment, he had to transcend all that. So that's a very important aspect of the story. I think another important aspect that I didn't mention during the initial talk is how he went from being a prince in the royal family, very rich and very wealthy, down to being this homeless beggar who essentially roamed the streets and begged for food and relied on the people to give him food. You know, in order to do this, it takes a certain amount of humbleness and elimination of ego. Right. So when you look at his life story of what he actually did, these are realizations that he was having all the way through his life. A Buddha doesn't just sit down and instantly become enlightened. And like for Siddhartha Gautama, he became enlightened at the age of 35. So from 29 to 35, that six years is when he was having his pursuit where he dedicated himself to actually attaining enlightenment. But once he was in that process of attaining enlightenment and he was having various realizations, looking back on his life as a prince was information to inform him 
during those six years to help him realize what was leading to the discontent mind. So I'm sure there was times when he was a prince and his wife didn't want to have sex with him and his mind was discontent. And at that time as a prince, he probably didn't know why. He probably got angry and frustrated that maybe his wife wasn't interested in sexual contact. But it wasn't until his pursuit to enlightenment that he ultimately starts realizing all of these truths and why his mind was discontent and kind of looking back to his life in those first 29 years to help him understand why he was experiencing all of those discontent feelings during those years that he was just being an average prince and just a normal prince that kind of informed him and gave him insight to use as examples and help him to transcend that. So I think it's important to see this humbleness in this man who steps down from the royal palace. I think it's important to see that he had the same craving, anger, and ignorance as everyone else when we go through life. And it's important to see that he had these deep cravings even for sexual contact, but he ultimately transcended all that through his realizations and training of the mind. Yes, and how he was completely unsatisfied with it by the time he left. Exactly. Uh, That's the other part of it, right? Like you would think like, okay, he was born as a prince, so he should just sit back in the lap of luxury. He's made it. And that's kind of like what we're taught in Western culture that this capitalism, this materialism, this, you know, if I just have this car or that house or this amount of money in the bank account, it's going to satisfy this life and there's going to be instant happiness. You know, if I win the lottery, there's going to be instant happiness. And we associate happiness with money. And that's because the mind is probably happy for a temporary period because it's based on that condition of the money. But then the mind starts craving and wanting more. So even though he had this wonderful life as a prince, his mind was still dissatisfied. His life was still unpeaceful. His mind was still uncalm. It was not serene. It was not content. It was not joyful. And this is how you know that pursuing this life of money and possessions, it's not going to lead to a peaceful mind and a content life. It's interesting also you mentioned a scenario where he might have actually experienced something unpleasant. And that's not something you hear often in the story of the Buddha, but it's inevitable. You, you live to 29 years old, he's got this insatiable craving. There's going to be moments where you don't just experience a lack of the pleasant, but you also experience the unpleasant. It's mm-hmm. just probably inevitable that you also experience those things despite the efforts of his father. Right, because what we know about craving is is craving is never really satisfied, right? Like growing up as a prince and his dad, you know, kind of putting all this luxury in his lap in order to woo him into the ways of being a monarch. So, okay, you have one or two women that are beautiful and bathing you when you're 10 years old, but all of a sudden, you know, you get 16 or 18 and that's not satisfying enough. I want four or five, six, and now I want more and I want more. Or now you have, you know, two or three beautiful clothings that with all these jewels and riches, but now I want more and I want more. And the mind just keeps craving and craving and craving and wanting more and never being satisfied. So even in that role as a prince, while he wasn't on a journey to understand it, looking back, he certainly used that time 
I'm sure, in order to inform his practice that he could see the craving and why in that life he was not satisfied, he was not content, and it helped him to ultimately teach other people. Yeah, thanks, David. So we have a question from Uma. Uma asks, I heard that Buddha came back to see his wife and his son Rahula after attaining enlightenment. Both became monks and attained enlightenment. Is that correct, sir? Yes, this is actually correct. You know, I've seen some people that will be upset that this spiritual leader left his family and they think that he abandoned his family. But in reality, what he did is he, he went out on his own for six years. Um, he kind of took a time out and he knew that he needed to solve this problem for himself. And by focusing on himself, he would then ultimately attain this for himself. And then what he did is he actually returned back to the area and his wife and his son and his brothers and, and even his mother ends up joining him and becoming ordained in order to learn and become enlightened. And this is where his father, the king, actually comes to him very discontent during the Buddha's life, you know, in despair because the Buddha was the firstborn son. The father, the king, was still attached to expanding this kingdom and having the monarchy continue. And because the Buddha left, that wasn't going to happen, at least with the firstborn son. But then his grandson joins him and his brothers join him and his cousins join him because more and more people are attaining enlightenment and explaining it and the word spreading more and more that his dad actually comes to him because his dad's still attached and his mind's discontent. And he's telling the Buddha that his teachings are actually going to destroy the kingdom because there's nobody to carry on the monarch. And the Buddha institutes a rule at that point based on this understanding from his dad that anybody who would like to ordain has to have the support of their parents and if they're currently married and have children they have to also have support by their spouse their life partner and their children and to this day in thailand as part of the ordination practices the parents and the life partner and the children will cut the first hairs on the person's head in order to signify their support for this person to become ordained. Because the Buddha realized at that time when his dad came that, yeah, this can cause a lot of problems in a household if the males and females are leaving the household to become enlightened, they just kind of drop out of society. It leaves the household unprepared to deal with what's left. So even though we know the Buddha attained enlightenment and his mind was enlightened, he's this really wise figure. Some of the teachings that he shared didn't come about until he encountered a certain problem. So when he saw this problem and what his teachings were causing this problem for his dad, he then instituted a rule to fix it. And that's what he came up with, is that in order to ordain, you need to have support of your family. And that's practiced now even here in Thailand. But yeah, his wife, his son, his stepmother, his brothers, a lot of people joined him. And he didn't just turn his back on his family. There's a difference between leaving your family to take some time out, focus on yourself, 
and then returning with something really good that can benefit a lot of people, including your family. There's a difference between that and turning your back on your family and walking out and never looking back. Some people who criticize the Buddha think that he did the second. They think that he left his family and turned his back on them and never looked back. But that's not what happened. He left, focused some time on himself for six years, and then he came back and actually had something to really benefit people. And this is another thing that you can take away from his story is you've got to focus on yourself, right? Had the Buddha never done that, had he stuck with those people that were disparaging the body or had he stuck with his family and the royal palace and trying to change everybody else, then he would have never had anything to benefit his family and all of humanity. But by him going out on his own, he was able to discover these teachings and then come back and actually benefit people. So you can't go out on your own in the forest and figure out enlightenment because you're not a Buddha. That's what a Buddha does. A Buddha figures it out on their self and then they return and now they're going to share the teachings with all the people that come around him in order to lead countless more people to enlightenment. That's what a Buddha does. But for everyone else, you need teachers and guides in order to help you attain this mental state of enlightenment. But the lesson there is that you have to focus on yourself. You have to focus on your own practice. If you find yourself with expectations or obligations or going around and trying to tell everybody else what to do, this is the mind trying to train everyone else and thinks that if they just do things your way, then you'll be peaceful, calm, serene, and content, but you won't because you'll train everybody to do certain things your way and kind of be controlling, maybe even manipulative, put obligations on other people, and they're gonna maybe follow those things out of respect, but then what you want from them is gonna change. You're gonna add more things to your list, and now you're gonna try to get them to do more and more things, or this other person's gonna show up in your life that hasn't you know, kind of bowed down to your ways, and now your mind's discontent because they're not following what you have set out and you think is appropriate. And that's why training your mind is going to lead to peaceful, calm, serene, and contentness with joy because you're training your mind not to have this craving, this longing, this mental eagerness to get everybody to do things a certain way based on your expectations, but you train your mind to just kind of let it be. And this is a really important takeaway from his life story is that, yes, you've got to focus on yourself and dedicate time and effort to yourself before you can ever teach anybody else and share something that's going to be beneficial with other people. We have a question from Mercia. Mercia asks, what is your view about going on extended Buddhist retreats that are offered by monasteries and Buddhist centers? I think they can be really helpful if you've got the time and space in your life to do that. But what's important is that you find a place that's actually sharing the true teachings. You know, even these Theravada teachings that are here in Thailand, not everyone is practicing them and understands them in the same way. So this is why in the book I give guidance on how to determine if a teacher has attained enlightenment, because you want to learn with someone who's already attained enlightenment. If they haven't attained enlightenment, how would they be able to lead you in the direction to attain enlightenment? So in the book, I think it's in chapter three, I provide guidance on 
how to determine if somebody has attained enlightenment or not. So these Buddhist retreats, while blocking time out of your life and going on an extended retreat is great, you want to make sure the place that you choose is actually going to be a place that's really teaching you what's going to lead to enlightenment. And then the second part of that is once you find that, a place that does that, you want to make sure that you've learned in such a way that you can integrate those teachings back into your life. Because it's great to go on these nice retreats where everybody's practicing the teachings, people are meditating for long periods of time. It feels almost like a utopia. But oftentimes what people say is when they come out of those retreats, everything kind of falls apart because now they're in the real world where people aren't meditating and people aren't being kind and they're not being polite. And if you haven't learned enough of the teachings and integrated them and applied them enough, then it'll be like night and day. You go from this perfect environment of a retreat center where everybody's being peaceful, loving, kind, generous, compassionate, and now you go out in the real world and well, boom, it can hit you like a ton of bricks. So you've got to find a place that is definitely practicing the teachings that lead to enlightenment. And the way that you can know that is by seeing the lead teacher and talking and asking them certain questions, which I give you guidance in the book, and then make sure that you have this way of integrating the teachings into your life once you leave the retreat. I've started offering retreats here in Thailand. You'll see more and more opportunities if you'd like to come here and learn in a retreat setting with me, I'll be offering those for you guys. Okay, no more questions this time. Okay, let's talk about sickness, aging, and death. Because while the Buddha observed these observations, and at that time he said Hartu Gautama, but while he observed sickness, aging, and death, and he didn't have the answers at that time, those were the motivators that encouraged him to go on this spiritual journey. Those are the three things that are the most challenging aspect of human existence, is sickness, aging, and death. So I would like to talk with you and share some guidance and some insight of how to apply these teachings in these situations because these are the most challenging times that you'll encounter during life. Let's start with sickness. During sickness, the mind can oftentimes become highly discontent. The mind has this craving, this desire, this attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness for health, right? We're human beings. We're going to experience sickness, aging, and death. We realize that on an intellectual level. But when the body actually becomes sick, oftentimes the mind becomes discontent. It can become angry. It can become sad. It can become irritated, annoyed, what have you. And this is because the mind is craving permanence. It craves and longs for health. And because it's now sick, the mind becomes discontent. And what you have to realize is this is the mind causing itself to be discontent. It's holding on. So if you can realize during sickness that this sickness is impermanent, right? You get a cold, you get the flu, you get COVID-19, you get whatever it is, it's impermanent. It's not permanent. While it may take you away from certain activities for a week or two or three, it's not permanent. 
So what can happen is the body becomes sick, so we, the mind becomes discontent because it's craving health, but then because now we can't go do all these activities that we normally do, like going to work or going to restaurants or spending time with friends, we're in bed or we're in the house, now the mind becomes discontent because of that, because it has craving to go outside, it has craving to be with friends, it has craving to go to work and it has this big project or go to school. So all of these attachments, it's like a domino effect, a cascading effect where sickness can actually cause this cascading effect where there's lots of discontentness because of all these different attachments. And that's why it's such a challenging time in our life is because once the body becomes ill, then there's this cascading effect of all these cravings that the mind has and it wishes it can hold on to them. And because it can't, the mind becomes discontent. So you should work to and apply effort to try to maintain health with the body, whether that's exercise or eating well or, you know, taking certain walks in order to maintain physical health, you're still going to get sick. You're still going to have illness. But if you can take care of the physical body and reduce your sicknesses, the frequency of them and the severity of them, then that will really help you to not encounter these situations where you are sick. But when you are sick, you have to recognize it as impermanent and you have to recognize that there's going to be all these various attachments that the mind's going to want to go outside. It's going to want to go to work. It's going to want to go to restaurants. It's going to want to see your friends. It's going to want to do all these different things. And the mind's going to be discontent unless you just recognize the sickness is impermanent. That's the mind craving health. The mind's going to crave all these other things. And let me just deal with this sickness, however long it is, and then when it's done, it's done. Okay, so these are kind of like acute colds or flus or things like this. The other thing that I would like to share in regards to sickness is that our caregivers, whether it's doctors or nurses or family members taking care of us, it's really important during these times that you continue to practice the Eightfold Path because the Eightfold Path is built on the natural law of karma cause and effect, action, result, things like right intention and right speech and right action. Well, when you're sick, sometimes we use this as an excuse to be grumpy and miserable to the people around us, whether it's doctors, nurses, caregivers, friends or family. And we kind of grumpy and, you know, the mind's already discontent because it's sick and we want to be outside and we're not. And it's kind of discontent. And we kind of can sometimes be angry or frustrated with the people around us and not practice right speech. And this can cause problems for you. And then there's a cascading effect with that, that now people are less and less interested in taking care of you. So even though you're sick, you can't turn off this natural law of gamma. It's just like gravity. We can't turn off the natural law of gravity. It's always there. It's always in place. So even when you're sick, whether it's with a headache or a cold or a flu or something like this, you still need to be practicing these good, wholesome teachings of right intention, which is not harming or practicing harmlessness, non-ill will. You still need to be practicing right speech, which is speaking at the right time. What you say is true. You speak gentle. You speak with 
beneficially. You speak with a mind of loving kindness without blaming others. You still practice right action, right effort, all the entire Eightfold Path. I'm not going to go through the whole Eightfold Path in order, but if you go back and look at that chapter and you get really in touch with the Eightfold Path, which is what you need to do in order to attain enlightenment, is really learn that closely and in depth. You need to practice this whole Eightfold Path during times when you're sick as well, not just when you're well. And that includes meditation. So if you're laying in bed and you can't do seated meditation, then do laying meditation. You still need to train the mind during those times when you're sick. And then the next thing that I want to talk about with sickness is oftentimes when we're sick, particularly with chronic or long-term illnesses, we start to identify with that illness, right? You might say, I am depressed or I have bipolar, or I am an anxious person, right? And we, we, we start taking ownership or identity of these illnesses that we have. And what's important for you to realize is that these illnesses aren't you. What I encounter sometimes is people will say, I have depression. And when I share with them that these teachings of the Buddha will actually eliminate this from the mind, they're not willing to pursue this path because there's a certain identity or a holding on of this illness because it becomes part of the identity. But what you have to realize is that these illnesses are not permanent and these illnesses are not you. I do not have depression. The mind is experiencing sadness. The mind is experiencing sad thoughts. But I do not have depression because if you understand non-self and you learn that back in chapter four, there is no I, there is no me. So any of these chronic illnesses or these long-term illnesses, rather than think I have bipolar or I am an anxious person, that's almost like giving the mind an excuse to hold on to this anxiety. And because I have anxiety, I'm going to be different than everyone else. And you just have to deal with that because I have anxiety, right? But in reality, if you don't identify with these symptoms and you just realize with anxiety, the mind is experiencing certain fears and that's just the thoughts that are in the mind. And you realize that you can train the mind to let go of that, but that's not who you are as a person and you don't identify with that then you can do something to eliminate it because it's not me. I am not depression. I am not bipolar. I am not an anxious person. It's just those happen to be the feelings that were in the mind at one time. And by not identifying with the illness, you can let it go. Same thing. At one time in my life, I was diagnosed with muscular sclerosis and I had certain symptoms of muscular sclerosis and I was informed that I should be put on medication and very costly, very expensive injections that I would have to give myself almost daily. And probably within about 10 years, I wouldn't be able to walk. Well, that was about six or eight years ago that I was diagnosed with that. <clears throat> I never identified with the illness. I never truly felt or believed that I had that illness. I felt that there was something underlying all of that, maybe with food that I was taking or stress 
or just the way the mind was functioning that all these sensations and things that I was experiencing in the body, they were related to something else. And luckily, I never believed that I was bipolar. I never believed that I had depression. I never believed that I had panic disorders. I never believed that I had muscular sclerosis. I recognized that the mind was not well and there was a certain experiences with physical sensations in the body, but I never identified with those illnesses. I never felt that I have bipolar, I am bipolar. So by letting go of taking ownership of these things and just realizing those are the thoughts that are in the mind, you can then work to eliminate them. That's not who you are. You can actually eliminate these things. The next one is aging. As we age, we're going to experience certain aches and pains, sensations. We're not going to have our youthful appearance that we once had. We aren't going to be able to do things as easily as we were at one time in our life. If the mind holds on and it craves youthful appearances, or it craves to be able to do things in the way that we used to when our bodies were more young, more limber, more able to do certain things, then that's going to oftentimes send the mind into situations where we're actively trying to pursue this youth. And you'll see this where people feel that if you take certain medications or certain vitamins or certain supplements, it's going to maintain your youth. Or people will go to certain surgeries, you know, it'll take a lot of money and effort and work to make all this money for certain ways to beautify the body through surgery. And this is the mind craving that youthful appearance. Well, if you do that, then what that means is you're going to send yourself in the direction of having to expend all this amount of work and effort in order to acquire the resources that you need in order to have that surgery or to take these unproven supplements or something like this. And that means you're just gonna have to work and work and work and work. And once these results are attained, let's say I get a facelift or I get other surgery to augment my, my aging, that's gonna satisfy the mind for a certain period of time but then that's not going to be satisfying. And then six months or a year down the road, the mind's going to want another surgery. And now it's going to go out and work and work and work and work and get all these resources and now have another surgery. And then that's going to be satisfying to the mind for a while. And then it's going to want another one. So the problem isn't that we're aging. That's a natural part of existing as a human being. The problem is that the mind is craving to be young and for this youthful appearance and the mind isn't recognizing impermanence. The mind isn't recognizing that at one time this body was young and youthful and it could do certain things that I can't do anymore. And the body looked a certain way that it doesn't look like that anymore. And as long as the mind keeps craving that, then we're going to go to these extenuating situations, this enormous amount of effort to pursue this youthfulness. But fixing the face and taking out a couple of wrinkles, it doesn't fix the problem because the problem isn't the wrinkles. Or if I was a female, maybe my breasts are not as plump as they used to be 
that's not the problem. The problem is that the mind is craving something that it doesn't have. And as long as we try to fix the wrinkles or fix the breast or fix some other physical feature that we have, the mind's just going to keep craving more and more of that. And you're going to get yourself into a cycle where you're just constantly pursuing this youthful appearance, never really addressing the real problem. The real problem is that the mind doesn't recognize impermanence. The mind's not comfortable with the body becoming older and the mind has this craving, this desire, this attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness for youthfulness. And because that problem's not being solved, the mind's just gonna keep craving and craving and craving this youthful appearance. And it's never going to get peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy because it's just gonna have to keep doing all this work in order to acquire these resources to take in these surgeries or these other procedures or supplements or products in order to maintain what the mind thinks is going to be a youthful appearance. But what we have to recognize is there's just no way around it. There's no way around this aging. It's part of the human experience. It's part of the human condition. It's part of that human existence. And if we just get comfortable with that, we're going to have a little aching pain here and there. We're going to have some wrinkles. Our body's going to put on a little bit of weight here and there. It's not going to have this youthful appearance. Then we've actually addressed the real problem of the mind craving youthfulness. Any questions on this? Yes, we have a question from Bill, and this is actually also relevant to myself and my own livelihood. So Bill and I both like to ask, when you're talking about vitamins and supplements, you, you were talking, we think about anti-aging products in particular, but what about ones that are beneficial for maintaining good health? This is where you should get really good at figuring out the truth, right? A person who's on this path, people often call seekers or truth seekers. So because you're hopefully training in a way where you're learning these teachings, you're not believing them, you're seeking the truth and you're looking at the truth and always looking for the truth. If you're going to commit to some type of supplement or vitamin or something like this, you should look to see the truth and make sure that if you're going in that direction, that there's actually real truth in it. There can be lots of different scientific studies but it doesn't necessarily mean that the scientific evidence is really the truth because we know that these scientific experiments are oftentimes funded by the very people who are benefiting and profiting from the products that are being sold. So what you have to get to is observing the truth for yourself. Look at how you feel without this product and then take the product and see is it really making a difference. At one time in my life, I did take vitamins and I took fish oils and different things like this. But I realized that eliminating all of that eliminates an enormous amount of expense. And what's the mind really craving when we're taking all these vitamins and different things? We're craving to live longer, right? We want to live longer and we're trying to get one more month or one more year or whatever. That's what the mind's thinking that by taking these vitamins that somehow it's going to be healthier. But if we go to the real source of the problem, well, what's the real source of the problem is we should be able to ingest healthy food that is going to provide us plenty of vitamins and minerals and all the different things that we need 
in order to sustain this life? You know, did Gautama Buddha take certain supplements during his life? I don't think so because those things didn't even exist. He lived until he was 80 years old. And, you know, to me, that's a decent life, 80 years old. So to me, even though at one time I took vitamins and supplements, I'm looking to solve the real problem there. The real problem is if I'm taking vitamins and supplements, it means I'm not getting the nutrition and the food that I really need. So let's solve that problem and make sure I get the vitamins and minerals that I need in food intake. And then I can avoid having to do all this work and spending all this money on these erroneous products that are really just making claims that we don't really know if they're true or not, because we don't really have a true way to really test it in an environment where the testers aren't influenced by greed, hatred, or delusion. I'd like to ask a follow-up actually on the diets issue, specifically about veganism, which to all intents, I think is a very laudable lifestyle choice that Mm -hmm. does minimal harm. However, what about this issue of vitamin B12? And I, I know a lot of vegans who choose to supplement with B12. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm testing that for myself now. I stopped eating meat in kind of October 2018. And then at that time, I was still eating eggs and a little bit of dairy and stuff. So I kind of have been off of all of that stuff for probably a good six months to eight or 10 months. And I'm testing whether B12 is actually really needed or not. I'm not taking what people are saying in the community. I'm testing it for myself. I talked with someone who takes B12 and they said that the reason why they needed to start taking it is because the mind became cloudy and foggy and they didn't have concentration. And once they started taking B12, they noticed that that improved. So I know what my level of concentration and clarity of mind is through right mindfulness. And the further and further I get away from animal products, we'll see if that's actually being impacted or not. What people have said and what I've seen online is that there's enough B12 stores for about two to five years, that if you completely went vegan, you have enough kind of stored for about two to five years. So I'm only about six to 10 months into my experiment. And we'll see over the next uh, two to five years how not taking B12 and only having a plant-based diet, do I really need B12 or not? Interesting, yeah. I have a friend who was vegan completely for many years and developed certain nerve issues. It took him a while to have it diagnosed, but he had um, pain in his foot, Mm -hmm. which just wasn't going away. He had a couple of operations and it wasn't going away. And the final conclusion was that not get enough B12 had, I'm pretty sure I'm straight on this, yeah, not getting enough B12 had caused nerve damage in his, in his foot. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's one thing I wanted to highlight. Um, yeah, I'll look out for that. It was on the call earlier, actually, but you know, I have to track him down and get the details. But um, yeah, that's one thing I, I've heard. Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, take anything that anyone says or that I read as truth until I test it for myself. So I've been looking at this B12 thing for a bit and doing some research, but because I don't experience any symptoms that I would uh, attribute to going vegan, then I am not just starting to take B12 just because other people said I should. I'm 
testing it for myself. One thing that I did notice after going vegan is I don't have the same muscle density as I had before, but also I'm not working out like I used to. I used to eat a, a lot of protein through meat and I used to work out quite a bit. So I had much more muscles on my body, but my mind isn't attached to physical appearance and self-image. So as I've become more and more vegan, I just noticed that uh, my muscles are softer. They're not as defined, not as plentiful. And, but that's completely fine with me because I know that this body isn't me. This isn't, there is no I, there is no me. So I'm completely fine with that. The mind feels so much more clear and concentrated having not ingesting animal products because I feel that I'm not ingesting the hormones and the drugs and the toxins that were being put into the meat in order to grow the animal. That once I started getting rid of animal products out of my diet, I noticed just like so much clarity of mind was coming through more and more and more. And I saw that as evidence of, yes, I need to get rid of this animal products. I also noticed that through eating plant-based food that my skin is more clear, it seems more bright. And that I associate to eating plant-based food because I noticed the changes right when I stepped away from meat all of a sudden the mind became more and more clear, more and more focused. The skin became more clear, more bright, more resilient. And I've seen lots and lots of benefits from it, but I haven't seen any need to actually go to B12 yet. I think that's a really powerful point there about testing it in the, the lab of your own mind. Yeah. And of course, with right mindfulness, you would notice if something was awry. If something starts to go wrong, you would know. Yeah. And that's where if you become a really good practitioner of these teachings, then you're not going to just listen to what I say and just believe it. You're going to actually put it into practice and see that it's truth for yourself. Whether that's about the teachings of the Buddha or anything else in your life, don't just believe what people are telling you. Look for the truth. And I think now in the age of social media and all the things that we're seeing, we're seeing even more and more that that's so important because misinformation is so prevalent in our society that we have to look for the truth ourselves. And if one and one is going to equal two, we need to see that for ourselves and not just rely on someone else's opinion. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we have no more questions this time. Okay, let's talk about death. Death is kind of the third challenging thing that's part of this human existence and probably the most challenging one for all of us not only facing our own death but the death of those close to us and oftentimes this can create a lot of discontentness in the mind so what you have to realize is that death is inevitable everybody's going to have to die not just us but everybody else because everything's impermanent it's part of the human condition so we need to accept that death is going to happen and we need to get comfortable with that and recognize that that's part of this human existence. So as I had spoke in a previous talk, it's important that the people around you, that you're loving, caring, kind, compassionate, that if somebody dropped dead tomorrow, there would be no regrets. And by you treating everybody around you in the way that you know you should through these good wholesome teachings, then somebody who perhaps might die that's close to you, you don't have any regrets by the end of their life. 
That's really important. And also that you don't have any regrets by the end of your life. So if you have kids or grandkids, it's important that you have conversations with all of these people that if you or them die in this instant, that there's no regrets so that the mind's not holding on. The reason why the mind is so discontent over death is because it's craving, right? That's the cause of all discontentness. When mom or grandpa or whoever passes away, the mind's holding on and it, it craves permanence. And when this situation happens, the mind can become discontent where it's sad. But if you train it, you can actually experience death and be just as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Not really joyful that they've died, but you just recognize on a certain level that this is what needed to happen because everything's impermanent. And then you can also get in touch with your own death because an enlightened person isn't going to be discontent when other people die. An enlightened person also isn't going to fear death themselves because you need to eradicate and eliminate all fears in your life. If you fear snakes or tarantulas or if you fear heights or something like this, you need to put the mind in those situations in order to train it to be comfortable. So if you fear heights, you should go around a lot of places where there's high buildings and train the mind to look over the side and, and not be scared. And in terms of death, I gave you guys some suggestions where you can actually envision your loved ones dying or having died that you've gotten the news of their death and really get in touch with that and convince the mind that this person's dead and see how the mind reacts and what would you think? What would you be experiencing? What would that look like? And if you cry and you're sad and you're upset, then let it go. And then, you know, at some point, be in contact with that person and talk with them and whatever rose to your mind if you're like you know i really wish i would have said this to them before they die then go ahead and do that and the same thing is you can envision your own death which i did many many times envision my own death and what that would look like and how that would go and how i would feel about that and when you're around people who are dying and if you're experienced that then you can really get in touch with death so that you don't have this uncomfortable relationship with death. Because when I was about 16 years old, my first girlfriend actually died. Uh, she was 18 and I was 16. And some people said she was even one month pregnant. That's what we thought essentially, but we weren't sure 100%, but we kind of thought that she was. So when that death happened at the age of 16, it put me into a deep, deep depression. I had lots and lots of sadness and despair for two, three, four years. Didn't date other people and just became very sad and very miserable. And from that point forward, I always had a very uncomfortable relationship with death. Uh, whenever I heard one of my friends would die, I would have the intentions to go to their funeral, but then when it came down to it, I actually wouldn't go because I just had a very uncomfortable relationship with death. And then my grandfather died, another person who was really close to me. But with him, I cried for about 20 or 30 minutes. I felt sad for about three or four months. I always kind of questioned whether he loved me because I never remember him telling me that he loved me. He was a Marine in World War II. So I asked my grandmother, I said, you know, how did grandpa feel about me? Did, did he actually love me? 
and she told me some things that I never knew about my grandfather and how he used to talk about me when I wasn't around. And she shared all these stories about how fond he was of me. And it really kind of let go of that burden that I never really knew whether my grandfather actually loved me or not. I kind of thought he did, but I wasn't really sure because I never heard it. And then after that, the next person who died was my mom. She died in 2017. And when she died, I had no sadness, no despair, no nothing. She actually called me about three or four days before she was dying. She thought she had about a week left. And I just told her, be well, you know, you know, rest in peace. And she apologized for things that maybe she felt like she didn't do in life. And I said, mom, you did the best that you could, you know, go be in peace. And I didn't grieve. I wasn't sad. I wasn't discontent. I had no feelings. I wasn't joyful that she died, but I wasn't sad. The mind was just in the middle. So you can actually get to this point where with people with loved ones or even your own death that you don't fear your own death and that you don't hold on to people around you who might end up dying. But you need to put yourself in those situations and experience that. Even from the time when I was 16 and had that deep, deep despair with my girlfriend having died, I would never have thought that later in life like this that I would be so comfortable with death. And now I've experienced death of my wife's sister, her mother, her father, other people in our life have passed away. And I'm sure my grandmother and my father is probably next. And I don't dread it. I'm not holding on. I know that at some point I'll get a phone call that they've passed and okay, it's just their time to die. And we move on and I'll appreciate the time that I've had with them. And I'll appreciate all the lessons that I learned. But I just recognize that they're human and they need to die. And that's just the way this life works. But if we hold on and we crave and we try to maintain this permanence with these different relationships, then the mind is going to be discontent when they die. Additionally, if you come from the tradition or the belief that there's a supreme being or a God who's taking people away from you, this can be pretty upsetting to the mind too, that when somebody dies, if we feel like this supreme being, this God has now taken this person away from us, then that can cause discontentness as well. But if you realize that that's not what happens, that's not why people die, people die only for one reason. The reason why people die is because they were born. That's the only reason why people die is because they were born. Because they were born and they are human, they have to die. And it's our choices in this life that lead to our ultimate death and when that death actually occurs. So the goal in this practice is to train the mind to get to this enlightened mind state where you can see the peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy during your life. You can see the peacefulness of your mind improve where you don't have fears, you don't have discontentness and all of these other discontent emotions so that when there is death, whether it's your death or somebody else's death, the mind is not craving and there is no rebirth. Because if there is craving at the time of death, that means there's going to be rebirth and that means you're going to experience sickness, aging and death all over again, multiple, multiple, multiple times until you 
discover and practice the teachings close enough where you attain enlightenment. So you can use this as motivation. When you're sick and you're feeling miserable on the bed and you've got a fever and you're sweating and you have to change your sheets three or four times because you're sweating so badly, or when the body has aches and pains because you're aging and your body doesn't do the things that it used to do, or when your loved ones are dying or you think about your death and that bothers you, use this as motivation and encouragement to continue to learn and practice these teachings so that you will no longer experience birth again because if there isn't birth, then you're not going to need to experience sickness, aging, and death. And that's the ideal goal. A question from Manal. Manal asks, what is a good way to introduce death and dying to your children based on the impermanence? Ultimately, I would like my children to recognize this truth as early in their life as possible, but I do not know how to approach this. Okay, I can share with you what I did. This is a great question. First, of course, I taught my son about impermanence because his mind needed to go through the same wisdoms that I teach you guys. So I taught him the three universal truths, impermanence, discontentness, and non-self. So you can introduce impermanence to him and you can explain to your children how nothing's permanent and then show him examples around the world. Like when you see a leaf, and it's kind of old and brittled. There's some that are green and some that are dying. And you can show them, see, this is impermanence. Or you see a house that's dilapidated and falling down. You can say, see, that's impermanence. And then you can point it out to them more and more and more of what impermanence is. And then ultimately get to a point where they're giving the answer. So when you're driving down the street and you see something that reminds you of impermanence, you can point to it and you can say, look, there's a car that got into an accident. What is that? And they say, oh, that's impermanent. So you get them to actually answer. But first, you have to give them the teachings. And then once you see that the teachings are well-rooted, then to confirm that they understand what impermanence is, then you question them and ask them, what is this? Or like my son, like sometimes his toys would break. And he would come to me in the past and he would be crying and I would show him how his toys are impermanent and his mind is discontent because his mind is holding on and craving permanence with his toys. And then I actually got to the point where after he would go to school, he maybe made a, a nice Lego before he went to school. I would actually break up the Legos just maybe one or two broken a little bit when he would go to school and he would come back and he would see him and he would cry. And then I would tell him, see, this is impermanence. And then within like 30 seconds, he would put them back together and see that he could put them back together. And he would see that, yeah, not only is it impermanent that it broke, but it's impermanent that I can fix it and put it back too. So really good lessons on impermanence. And I actually did that three or four or five times where I broke his Legos. And then eventually he got to the point where he just would walk in and he'd be like, Dad, you broke my Legos again, didn't you? And he, he wouldn't cry anymore because he got used to impermanence. And we did this over multiple sessions, over multiple times, gradually letting his mind get trained to accept impermanence more and more. And then once I knew impermanence was well-rooted, he understood discontentedness, non-self, and some of these other teachings, I actually mentioned to him, I said, how are you going to feel someday when dad dies? Because you realize dad's going to die someday, right? Like dad's impermanent too. And initially, you know, he said, wow, like I hadn't thought about that. And, 
And then we talked about it and discussed it. And then once I knew that he understood impermanence, I even said about his mom, because he's more attached to his mom than he is me. So I said, how are you going to feel when your mom dies? You know, she's not permanent as well. She's going to die someday. Someday you're going to be in this world by yourself. And this actually led to really good conversations because it helped him to understand why mom and dad are teaching him so much and we're so active in sharing good lessons with him and we're also actively involved in making sure he gets his education at school because he knows that mom and dad are impermanent and someday he's going to be in this world by himself and he needs to learn all this knowledge and, and wisdom so that he can have his own life and actually function in society himself. So a lot of times these conversations that I have with my son lead to connecting in other good, wholesome things that I'm looking to share with him, like making sure he goes to school, making sure that he's paying attention, making sure that he's respecting his teachers, making sure that he's taking care of his body by taking a shower and brushing his teeth. I can connect in the Buddhist teachings into all these good, wholesome decisions that he needs to make in his life. Because as a parent, I can't make decisions for him. I need to teach him how to make decisions on his own. So if you recognize as a parent that you are impermanent and your child realizes that and they realize that you are preparing them to make really good decisions when you're not together and ultimately once you die, then it takes on a new importance of why they need to go to school or why they need to sit down and learn with you right now of what you have to share with them about not lying because they need to learn these good wholesome lessons because mom and dad are impermanent. So I would suggest that you do it slowly and that you first make sure that they understand impermanence and multiple different things. And also make sure that they see animals that have died. So like if you're driving down the street and you see a dead animal on the side of the street, you can show them that death. See, animals are impermanent. They are alive. They were born. So therefore they have to die. And once they're comfortable with impermanence, they're comfortable with seeing impermanence in the world. They see animals and they see animals that have died. Then you can kind of move into, well, mommy and daddy are going to die. But this happens over multiple months. Right. You don't want to just hit them with mommy and daddy are going to die. You need to put some other groundwork and foundation in place to lead up to that. When we talk about death like this, we're meaning the death of the body, death of the brain. But in what sense does the mind die as part of that? Yeah. So we call this at the time of death, we call it the breakup of the body because there's the physical body and there's the mind that are together. And this is a new existence. But then at death, the physical body dies. The mind extinguishes as well, because if there's a new birth, there's going to be a new mind, right? If you attain Nibbana during this lifetime, or you attain enlightenment during this lifetime, the mind's going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy for the rest of your life. You're not going to tell people, you're not going to have to tell people, you don't you shouldn't tell people because that just is indication of ego, which means you haven't attained enlightenment. But the mind you're going to know for yourself that 
I haven't been angry for years. I haven't even experienced an annoyance or irritation. There's always peace, calm, serenity, contentness, and joy. So you're going to know. But when you die, we actually call this para-nibbana or final nibbana. Because even you attain nibbana in this life, essentially what you've done is you've killed the mind, right? You've killed the interest to kill. You've killed the interest to steal. You've killed the interest to commit sexual misconduct. You've killed the interest to lie. You've killed the interest to take substances that cause heedlessness. You've killed the interest to speak hostile and unkind. You've killed the ego. You've killed the self. You've essentially, you've annihilated the mind and it's become bright. It's become enlightened, right? But there's still this physical body. So there's been this death of the mind in order to create enlightenment and get to this natural state of enlightenment. But the mind and the physical body are still together. So if you put your hand on fire, it's still going to feel painful and the mind's going to feel the pain, but you're not going to start cussing and being angry and disgruntled by that. You're just going, oh, pain. Hmm, I shouldn't do that. Okay. And the mind is probably you know, the mind's going to still be joyful. So there's still going to be a certain amount of pain that the mind experiences. So there's still this attachment where the mind and the body are physically together. And if you've attained enlightenment, the mind is already essentially died and became this enlightened mind. But there's still this connection. But then there's physical death. There's death of the body. That's the physical death. And that's para-nibbana or final nibbana where the mind and the body separate and now there's no more pain whatsoever. That's complete, full, final enlightenment at that particular point. Okay, so these, these agents of birth and death and you know, craving, and the other defilements, you know, the other fetters, these have been ceased, but the latent effects like the body is still here. Yeah, you can't then separate the that. Dies. Yeah. yeah. It only and happens at death, at physical death, because you've yes. already had a mental death where you've killed the mind, annihilated the mind through the path to enlightenment. So there's already been a death of all those unwholesome qualities in the mind. And this is why people say if you attain enlightenment, when death comes, there is no death. The Buddha described it as deathless. He called people who attained enlightenment, he said they are the deathless, meaning you already killed the mind, so you can't die. There's no, there's no death. When there's physical death, there is no death because you've already killed the mind. You've already attained enlightenment. So there'd still be an experience of form. Consciousness would still be there, but they would all cease the moment the body died. Right. The five aggregates are completely annihilated at that point. Right. I've heard it said that uh, birth and death are happening in every moment. Some people that, say that. Sorry, the Buddha. The Buddha didn't say that. Right. Um, but essentially what that's doing is, is explaining impermanence, that the body right. is a, it's a new body every millisecond, right? Uh, it's just impermanence. But the Buddha didn't say that. So each moment is like conditioning the next moment, in yes. effect. 
Yes. Right. It's like yeah. now that I've been talking to you, why I'm sitting here, some of the, the cells of my skin have fallen off just because they, they're dead skin cells. So the physical body that's talking to you now is different than when I started the talk an hour, hour and a half ago or whatever. Right. So some, that helps people to understand impermanence, that everything's impermanent. So I'm asking a barrage here, but the, the consciousness that one experiences, say, in this moment versus at the very end of their life, which is a different experience, is that any less different than what next life considers? Bearing in mind, it's not the same being, it's not the same consciousness. Nothing is really being reborn. There's just this craving that is giving rise to this new birth. But is it like a whole new consciousness in precisely the same way that my consciousness now is different from what it would be at the time of death? Yeah, so if somebody hasn't attained enlightenment as an arahant and there's death, then there's going to be rebirth or a new existence. And what happens is the body, physical body, is going to die and decay and return back to the earth. The consciousness is going to extinguish but there's still craving and that craving is going to lead to the next birth it's like essentially like there's a fire here and even though that fire has gone out there's this spark that carries over with the wind and now it ignites a whole new fire so that spark that spark is the fuel that causes rebirth that's the craving and if there's craving, then there's going to be another birth, another existence. And where you actually are born, whether it's in one of the lower realms or the human realm or the heavenly realm, is all based on gamma. So it's craving that determines if there is birth. That's the fuel that causes rebirth. But it's gamma that determines the situation, the destination, which realm, what's the condition of that birth. I have one more follow-up and then I'll let someone else have a go. Um, so when rebirth happens, is it the state of the mind in the final moment that conditions the, the rebirth or is it more the general level of wisdom and craving that that mind holds that is latent there? It's the condition in the final moment. Right. That's why all that matters is the present moment. And this is why someone can actually attain enlightenment at death if somebody has craving all through their life, they've been discontent, but slowly as they age, they may not be enlightened. They might not even know what enlightenment is. They maybe never even heard of the Buddha. They can still actually eliminate the cycle of rebirth at death because of the way these fetters naturally fall off as part of natural death. And they can actually eliminate the cycle of rebirth without having ever even heard the word Buddha before. Yeah, I can imagine that it makes sense because you know, I remember being more troubled by things when I was a teenager than I am now, for example, mm -hmm. even like little pains and things. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine how someone who is much older hasn't really got anything to prove. They're pretty relaxed, pretty content. You know, they've done a lot of what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. What else is there? naturally these things are going to fall off yeah so think about like the first fetter of non-self personal existence view having a self-identity right this is the first fetter it's just to get to the first stage of enlightenment well we know that as you age 
one of the first things people do is like, I don't care how my hair looks. I don't care what clothes I'm wearing. L look at older people. Yeah. For the vast majority of older people, they don't care how they look. They don't have any self-identity. And then if you keep on going in the fetters, sexual cravings, sensual desire. As you get older, what happens is the craving for sexual pleasures diminish. And we could go through all of the various fetters and you can see how natural death leans towards enlightenment. It doesn't mean it's going to necessarily occur. And now that you're this aware of the Buddhist teachings, why risk it and take a chance that you actually get to enlightenment yeah. at death and live the rest of your life with discontentness? Let's just apply some effort to learn and practice the teachings now, kill the mind, and then we can enjoy the rest of this life with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Thank you. That's really helpful. Okay, so we have question on zoom from Jatin Grover Jatin says hello sir I'm from India I'm a medical student I've done everything possible I can but my mind is always full with negative thoughts and anyone who says anything to me that hurts me a lot I want to know how much time I should spend practicing meditation and what I should change in myself so in order to eliminate this discontentness that you're experiencing when people say something to you that you don't like. Yes, you need to meditate. That's part of it. But you need to make sure that you're doing the correct meditations. But more importantly, is you need to learn all the other teachings. A lot of times people come into these practices and they think that they just meditate and then everything's going to be fine. Max didn't say this to me, but Max was meditating when I met him and he had a pretty decent life and he was just meditating. And But it wasn't until you learn the teachings about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Three Universal Truths, learn about the Natural Law of Gamma, the Three Poisons, all these other teachings where you can really make big active steps to progress the quality of the mind and the condition of the mind. So you could meditate 24 hours a day for the rest of your life and you're not going to ever attain enlightenment. You're never going to attain enlightenment. What you need to do is you need to have a teacher and have resources that you can learn the teachings and you can discover that they are truth through applying those teachings in daily life. And it's not until you do that that you're going to see any improvement in the quality of your mind. doesn't matter how much meditation you do. So meditation is not like a secret medicine that's going to solve all the problems or a secret potion. Meditation is part of it and it's a foundational practice that you need, but you really need to inform the mind with all of these teachings. So if you're just joining us now for maybe the first time, what I suggest for you is that you download the book that I share, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And you start reading that, and at the end of each chapter, there's resources for further exploration, which are videos and podcasts and quizzes. And as you're working your way through that material and you're applying the teachings in daily life, including meditation, as you have questions, come into these classes or ask questions on Facebook in order to get guidance and help with understanding the teachings and applying them in your life, because that's the only thing that's going to fix this discontent mind, not just in this one situation where you don't like what people are saying to you, but in all situations, you need to 
learn the teachings to apply these teachings in all situations. Thanks, David. We have no more questions. I thought I'd just share a comment from uh, Lisa Horowski, though, who, in relation to what we said earlier, she says she's converting to a vegetarian diet uh, because she is no longer interested in, uh, she says, I don't want to eat death and suffering. And uh, she mm -hmm. says, eat life through plant-based diets. So I just wanted to say thank you to Lisa for that comment. Okay, great. Well, as you're going to read in this chapter, or you've already read, that these three experiences are what motivated Gautama Buddha in order to dedicate his journey to discovering enlightenment, is sickness, aging, and death. But these are also the three most challenging times to experience in life. So this human existence is made very difficult because of these three experiences of sickness, aging, and death. So what you should do is when these three things arise in your life is stay very focused on the teachings. As you're learning and practicing these teachings and you're meditating daily and you're seeing more and more improvement, that's really great. But no matter how well you're doing, when these three things come to visit you, it can really affect the mind, sickness, aging, and death. And realize that those are opportunities for you to really practice closely. So if you find yourself sick in bed, being discontent, recognize that that's your craving and work on that. If you're realizing that you're looking at the body as it's aging and you're feeling not good about that, recognize that that's the mind being discontent because it's craving youthfulness. If you have someone close to you that dies, notice that that has the potential to cause discontentness, but it doesn't have to. The more you learn and practice these teachings, you can actually train the mind to not be discontent during your loved one's death as well as your own death. Because by the time you actually die, you would like to be at the point either at that time or well before that that you're not holding on to anything in this world, that there's nothing that you're grasping for, nothing that you're craving, nothing that you're holding on to, because if you grasp and hold and you have a longing or a strong eagerness for anything in this world, or you're longing for some pleasant thing to happen to you after you die, that's still craving. It's going to produce the conditions that create rebirth. So you need to get to the point where the mind doesn't hold on to anything at all. And this is why when I teach meditation, I teach body, mind, and breath. No music. And if you're not there now, it's okay. Gradually move in that direction. No music, no keeping track of the time, You know, no favorite place to meditate, and I only ever meditate in that place. Anytime you see that the mind's holding on to anything, train it to let go. It doesn't mean you have to never meditate in that one particular place that you really like, but just train the mind not to be attached to that one particular place. So anywhere you see the mind holding on to anything, just let it go. Train the mind to be without it and not holding on to it. And then once you see that the mind has let it go, there's nothing wrong with going back to that particular place to meditate if that's what you feel like you'd like to do. So you need to let go of all of these things. You need to recognize that you're going to experience sickness, aging, and death. 
you and all the people around you are going to also experience it. And those are ideal times where the mind could potentially become discontent. And if you're noticing that, then just use it as motivation, as Gautama Buddha did, to learn and practice more deeply. And until we get together next time, have a really great rest of your day. Be very peaceful, very safe, very well, and may you be free of discontentness and the suffering that it causes. Thank you for joining, and we'll see you next time. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.